Welcome to River Life Podcasts. We're a church family embracing the Father's presence, releasing empowered people to declare and demonstrate Christ's kingdom. We trust that God would use what you hear today to bless and grow you so that you would be a blessing to those around you. For more information about River Life Baptist Church, go to riverlifechurch.org.au or find us on social media. It is, uh, it is great uh, to be with you tonight. Uh, I, like I said, nine years ago, I, I came to Kenmore, as it was back then, uh, as, a, as a 17-year-old kid. And uh, 17-year-old Nick never would have thought that this was a reality, um, that this was a possibility. And that's not to start off um, looking at myself, but to say that the Lord is so faithful. He is so faithful. Um, the privilege that it is to communicate his word um, to the body is not something that I've ever taken lightly. And to be trusted to do it in a space like this um, is a real privilege and it's really humbling. And so I just want to say, um, as we're going to get into, that, that as we're faithful to the Lord, he proves himself to be faithful as well. So, well, Daniel, let's look at it. We're in our History Maker series. It's our last week uh, in this series. We've got Vision Sunday next week. Over the last few weeks, you have heard a lot of the wider context um, of the exile uh, and the life that God's people were living in that place. And so I don't want to dive too deep into that. Um, If you haven't heard it, you'll just have to jump online um, and catch the last few weeks to get some of that wider context. But I do want to look at uh, a couple of cultural moments. And the first one is Daniel's cultural moment. And so from where we're sitting... uh, Daniel's probably somewhere around 17 years of age uh, at the start of, of the book of Daniel, just a young teenager. He's experiencing significant loss. And so his whole life, as he's known it, uh, has just been absolutely upended. Uh, his home has just been completely destroyed. His family have likely been killed uh, in the invasion. He's a mere 17 years of age. He's been given a new name. Uh, as we read early on in Daniel, that is the name of the Babylonian God that he does not serve and does not submit or surrender to. And so now they're just adding insult to injury for him that he's in this totally unfamiliar environment and has been given a new name. And names were so significant uh, in in the biblical times that that actually represented an identity for him. And so now all of these, this new culture that he's immersed in, these people that he's surrounded by, are now calling him by a name that he wasn't given, of a God that he doesn't serve or believe in. To add insult to injury, he knows the words of the prophet Jeremiah, that this is going to last 70 years. And so this is not an easy exit. It's likely that he'll potentially die in this place. And as we read on much later in Daniel, 70 years becomes a whole lot longer. And so he does end up never escaping this. We know that uh, he's potentially of a royal line uh, because he gets called to serve into King Nebuchadnezzar's court and he wouldn't just call on anybody. So he's potentially got uh, an amazing future ahead of him before all of this happens. And now he finds himself immersed in this culture that is completely different to what he grew up in and what he would have been expecting. To take it a step further, it's even likely that he would have been made a eunuch so that morally he couldn't be corrupted in his service to the king. He's now been trained in the customs and the ways of the people that destroyed his life. 
He's literally been picked, handpicked, to say you're going to spend three years in a training ground so that you can serve the king and you can serve in this kingdom that has ruined your life. This is Daniel's cultural moment at 17 years of age. He's called to come and serve the king who oversaw the upending of everything that he's ever known. So let's bear, bear that in mind as we continue on tonight. But I also want to look at our cultural moment and what's happening for us. Pastor Scott did an amazing job last week uh, just in general, but particularly unpacking um, some stats that are coming out of Australia in recent years about what's happening in our culture when it comes to the church and when it comes to faith and when it comes to, to things of, of what we're doing here, what we do on a weekly basis. And there's a trend. In 2006, two-thirds of the Australian population would have classified themselves as Christians. Fast forward to 2011, and census data indicated that 22.3% of the Australian population indicated that they were no longer religious or weren't religious. And at the time, this accounted for the fastest growing religious group in Australia. The fastest growing. Fast forward a little bit further to 2016, now only half of the Australian population want to have any affiliation with Christ. The trend is continuing. I'm going to reference the work of uh, a former seminary professor and, and church pastor from the US. His name is James Emery White. He uh, has written a book uh, called The Nuns, and, and it's this, this term that he's kind of coined uh, for this new religious group that seems to be emerging, or has been emerging for, for some time now, actually, uh, in both the US and the UK. And the nuns are essentially the religiously unaffiliated. So this group in Australia that, that we've also got, the guys that are no longer associating with religion whatsoever. And it's, it's estimated that nearly one in every four Americans would identify as one of the nuns from a 2015 study. One in four. Their population is huge. To put it into perspective, for every one new convert to the Christian faith, four people are walking away. New stats are, are even emerging closer to our cultural moment right now that the younger the generation, the more post-Christian it is. And so the youth, even to some young adults to an extent, kids that are coming through, the further away they get from us, the further away they are from the Christian faith. Which is crazy because Gen Z actually represent the largest generation on the planet at the moment. And this is affecting them the most because the second largest group, these nuns, are their parents. And so now you've got a generation of kids, of youth and young adults to an extent that are growing up in a cultural moment where youth group isn't the thing that you send your kid to on a Friday night anymore. Easter, Christmas, all of those attendances are down across the US, across the UK. We're moving into, or, or not even moving into, we're firmly in this cultural moment where the church seems to be becoming irrelevant. To the point that some cultural commentators, uh, some theologians, some influential Christian voices uh, in the UK basically got together for a two-year forum on what was happening. Because they looked at this statistic, 
that in, in 1963, only 3% of the UK population would have said that they wanted no affiliation with religion or that they weren't religious. In 2015, it was 44.7%. When you single it down to people 25 and younger, it grows to 66. Nearly two thirds, two thirds of the UK population under 25 are going, no. James Emery White says this, so pronounced is this trend in the UK that a two-year commission involving leaders, religious leaders from all faiths has called for public life in Britain to be systematically de-Christianized. In other words, Britain is no longer a Christian country and should stop acting as if it is. This is profound, what is happening in our cultural moment. We can sit here and, and, and look at news stories of the US and say, what the heck's going on over there? The same thing is happening here. We're moving in the same direction. Three of the biggest Western countries are seeing this pronounced decline in the relevancy or perceived relevancy of religion of the Christian faith. So what does all this mean? Like I said before, it means that Gen Z are the most affected by this and that some thought leaders, cultural commentators have coined this phrase of functional atheism. That is to say that rather than just rejecting the idea of God, culture is now just ignoring him altogether. Even in ancient times, Daniel in Babylon, there was always some level in culture, whether it was Greek culture, whether it was Roman culture, there was always a recognition of gods of some sort at some level. People always had something outside of themselves to look to, for vision, for direction, for purpose. And now this trend is emerging that the emerging generation is coming through going, no thanks. This has led to some of these cultural commentators and thought leaders coining the phrase that we are now living in a post-Christian culture or in a post-Christian world. They're drawing this parallel between what we're experiencing right now as the church and as Christians to what Daniel experienced in Babylon, going as far to say that we're living in this exile culture. And I don't know at a personal level if I would go that far, because if we're being honest with ourselves, the cost for us is nowhere near what Daniel experienced. But it is something that we need to be aware of that there is active opposition and just an apathy and a passiveness in the culture that we're trying to engage, that we're literally called to reach. And we need to do something about it as the church. Throw into the mix that some social media and, and communications experts believe that we are in the biggest communication shift in 500 years. It presents a bit of a problem for us as the church on how we actually engage culture with our message. Now I'm sure at this point, everyone feels really uplifted and empowered. So we just get the worship team back up and just, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. The truth is this, the entire book of Daniel is one massive encouragement to the church. That we see throughout this entire book that God is working, even in the midst of captivity, 
that he's working in the life of Daniel, that he's working in the life of his people, and that yes, there's ups and downs, there's moments of struggle, but where this story ends is that God is still in control. And in 2021, God is still in control. There's not a statistic that can dethrone him. There's not a cultural trend that can take the power out of his name. And we've got to recapture that as the church. And so before I I, I dig in to Daniel and and look at a couple of things, I want to preface this whole thing with the idea of posture. Years ago, years and years ago, um, I worked as a personal trainer. I ran my own business. And most of what I encountered in clients was uh, physical problems, physical pain that related to poor posture. And so a lot of what we were doing was, was working with people on loosening up their core muscles so that they could sit better at work, changing the setup of uh, their, making their workstations more ergonomical and all these things, strengthening muscles. And I learned very quickly that poor posture puts everything out of whack. And as the church, as Christians in this cultural moment, I think we need to look at some of the postures that Daniel adopted in the cultural moment that he lived in so that we don't end up out of whack. So the first posture I want to look at that that we can see in Daniel's life is a posture of prayer. There's widespread agreement that one of the key characteristics of Daniel's life was prayer and fasting. He had an unseen place with the Lord that directly influenced how he lived when he was seen. Probably the greatest example of this is in Daniel 6. It's the famous story of the lion's den. There's this moment where under the rule of a new king, some religious leaders, some of the people that Daniel was actually overseeing, desired to get rid of him. It was rumored that uh, King Darius wanted to promote Daniel to even a greater platform, to even greater influence, and, and these guys weren't happy about this. But it literally says that they could find no fault with how Daniel was going about conducting his business. But the only issue that they could find with him was his devotion to his God. What if, what if across the course of this year as the church, the only fault that people could find with us in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods was our devotion to the Lord? And so these guys concoct this scheme where they go to King Darius and say, King, some of these Jews in exile, they're not praying to you. They're not praying to our gods. Surely that's not acceptable. And they say, why don't you pass this decree that in in the next 30 days, if anybody prays to a God that is not you or not ours, that you throw them into the lion's den. And the king goes, of course. And I love this. This is uh, Daniel 6, verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. I don't know if anyone's been on a safari before. I haven't, but I've seen enough YouTube videos of lions getting out of their cages. The consequence for this is sure death. Sure death, certain death. 
And Daniel's response is not to make sure that his reputation stays intact or that he doesn't post something that might be a bit controversial. His response is to get on his knees back in the secret place, knowing that his devotion to God is is potentially going to cost him his life. But this is a well-worn path that he had. Three times a day he prayed in response to this, knowing what was going to happen, just as he'd done before. So the question is for us, what can our posture be? In, in a cultural moment where our worldview isn't really popular, where people get hung up on, on a couple of big things about what we believe, most of which the church can't even agree on, what can our posture be? Because sometimes it feels like that by being obedient, by being surrendered to God, that we might actually end up in the lines then of culture. It's called the comment section of social media. <laughs> but this is a real thing. The consequence for Daniel here is, is certain death. So what can our posture be? I think at some level, we either have to rekindle or discover for the first time a value and a love for the unseen place with God. For some of us, it might be for the first time. And if that is you, you are in for one of the most beautiful, sweet journeys of your life. (laughs) And if you've lost it, let's wear that path back down to a well-worn path to the secret place with the Lord. Where Where we see this, across scriptures, particularly is in Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus is talking about giving, he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, but let the Lord reward you. Let your Father in heaven reward you for what is done in secret. When he talks about prayer, he says, don't be like the pagans that stand on the street corner and pray long-winded prayers so that everyone thinks they're amazing. Let your Father in heaven reward what is done in secret. And when it comes to fasting, He says, don't be like the religious leaders who walk around with a a, a scrunched up face so that everyone would know that they're fasting and they're going without something. But let your Father in heaven reward what is done in secret. We cannot escape that when we do our works before man, our reward is received in full on this side of heaven. But when we have a value and a well-worn path to the unseen place with God, You can go into a lion's den and walk out the next day because the Lord will meet you there. I think there's a real reality for us as as not just a, a young adult generation, not just a generation of youth, not just the young guys, but as the church, even this even this series, history makers. I think it is, it is hardwired into all of us being created in the image of God to want to change history, to want to be part of something big, to be a history maker. But I can't help but think to myself that the Lord is saying, before you desire to change history, why don't you make some with me first in the secret place where there's no reward where there's no double tap that releases dopamine so you get a satisfaction kick for something that you posted, where no one knows what you've prayed, where no one knows the cry of the heart, and the only reward is that you were with your creator. (laughs) Because that is what sustained this man in captivity for his entire life. It was a well-worn path to the secret place. 
a constant coming back to the Lord. And I'll finish this point with this. Some people will know I'm, a, I'm impartial to a good camping trip, a good four-wheel driving adventure. And a few years ago, uh, my wife Jandy and I, before, before we had kids, um, Haven's running around here somewhere, uh, before we had kids, did a spur-of-the-moment, last-minute camping trip on New Year's Eve. And to, to cut a long story short, uh, we went to a private property. They gave us a map and said, this is the spot that you've got to go to. This is, this is the best spot on the property. No one's up there. Directions for this place were horrendous. And, uh, and Jandy, this is the first time that we had uh, like four-wheel drive properly together. So I'd been out a few times and, and she's not the biggest fan of, of some of that kind of four-wheel driving. And uh, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea where I was going. And, uh, and I felt like we were in the vicinity of where we were going. But it was this very overgrown track to the point that it was almost like it wasn't there. I was not convinced to this day that I was even on the right road. But flicked the indicator on and, and went for it. And it's a huge hill climb. There is overgrown lantana that gave my white four-wheel drive some amazing pinstripes. We drove through uh, a spider's web that had not been touched in months and this giant spider was attached to our, our UHF aerial. And we're just crawling and crawling and crawling. We have no idea what's at the top. Don't even know if we're on the right road. And uh, yeah, Jenny, it's fine. We'll, you know, it's okay. It's all good. We'll make it. And we get to the top, and it was just the most beautiful campsite, 360-degree views um, up in, in the scenic rim. And we camped there for the night. But the point is this. That was not a well-worn path. We could barely even find it. But if we're going to engage culture in the same way as Daniel, we need to have a path that is well-worn, that we know exactly where it is when we need it, that at the first sign of opposition, we can turn around and say, that's it. I'm going back to this place and I'm going to get on my knees three times a day and I'm going to give thanks to my God and he's going to come through for me because he's faithful too. The second posture is this, a posture of faith. And again, this can be seen all throughout the life of Daniel, but specifically, I want to highlight Daniel 2. This is a moment we're actually backtracking uh, under King Nebuchadnezzar. This is the king that uh, was responsible for where Daniel found himself. He has this dream uh, that he doesn't understand, and he calls in all of his, uh, his, his crew, I guess, who are usually involved in this space for him. And we've kind of got to read between the lines a little bit, but, but these are, are, are not men that are hearing from God. These are men that are channeling some, some not so nice stuff. And the king calls all of these guys in and says, uh, I had this dream and you need to interpret it. You know, and, and, and kind of the lead, the lead guy of this whole group is kind of drawing it out a little bit with the king going, yeah, yeah, we're there. We could just tell us the dream. Tell us the dream. Tell us the dream. And the king has this moment where he's like, I don't, I don't know if this guy's been genuine in whether or not he can actually interpret the dream. And so he gets angry. And he issues a decree that the, uh, the, the magic men, the wise people in his service, if they cannot interpret his dream, he will cut them into pieces and ensure that their homes are turned into rubble. And the king ups the ante a little bit more and says, not only do you need to interpret my dream, I'm not going to tell you what it is. Before you interpret it, you need to know what my dream was and then tell me what it means. 
And in all fairness to these guys, they turn around and go, there is not a man on earth who could do that. And in hindsight, we can sit there and go, (laughs) wait a minute. God hears that and goes, yes, there is. And so the king issues this decree, and now one of his his generals, so to speak, uh, comes and finds Daniel and a couple of his friends and says, hey, if you can't do this, this is what's going to happen. And without hesitation, we read that Daniel goes, I can do it. (laughs) Okay. So he goes back to a couple of his friends, says, we need to pray. Daniel goes to sleep that night. He wakes up and he's had a dream about the king's dream with the interpretation. He comes the next day and says, take me to the king. Take me to the king. So Daniel comes before the king. He unpacks this whole dream. You can read about it. He unpacks this whole dream. He tells the king what it means. But my favorite moment, my favorite moment, maybe, maybe in all of, of Daniel, is when Daniel actually approaches the king. He comes before the king and, and Daniel replies, no wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he goes on to unpack the dream. And the reason why this might be one of my favorite moments in the whole book is the faith of Daniel. The faith of Daniel in, in, in the face of, again, persecution, opposition. There is a king, there is a God in heaven who can reveal mysteries. And I don't want to be overly critical on the church and of Christians, but I think we need to recapture at some level that there is a God in heaven that so loved the world. There's a God in heaven who is still bigger than sickness. There's a God in heaven who is still greater than disease. There's a God in heaven who still has the power to save and still cares about culture. There is a God in heaven who can reveal mysteries. And I love this because on on Daniel's part, it's a declaration of faith that sets the king up later in verse 47 to give all glory and all honor and all worship to Daniel's God. So again, what can our posture be? What can our posture of faith be? And it's obviously not one thing, but I think 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 to 5 captures something that we can do well. This is Paul. My message and preaching were not with wise or persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith would not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. My uh, young adult pastor, man crush, Chris Cruz, of this passage says this, that, that when we rely on our wise and persuasive words, we're ultimately just leading people to ourselves and not to God. The church, our lives as followers of Christ, should be littered with demonstrations 
of the Spirit's power. It's literally permeated through the Gospels. It's how Jesus demonstrated that the kingdom of heaven was at hand and was near. Demonstrations of the Spirit's power. It's what we see all throughout the book of Acts, that there's these moments, there's this rhythm that develops in the book of Acts that that we read things like these ordinary, uneducated men. They couldn't find fault with these guys, but what they were doing was demonstrations of the Spirit's power that couldn't be denied, that didn't lead people to them, but led people to God. The third one is this, a posture of surrender. I think that moment in Daniel that best captures this is in Daniel 1, going back again. This is the early days. Daniel is is a teenager here in these moments. He gets handpicked. He gets pulled into the king's service. And as part of that, uh, he spends three years in this training ground, so to speak, learning the the customs and the ways of Babylonian culture so that he could be an asset to the kingdom. And as part of that, uh, that there was specific food and wine that was set aside for these guys. But it creates a problem for Daniel and some of his friends because the way that we would say grace and give thanks to God, in Babylonian culture, they would, they would offer this wine and this meat up to their gods as an offering. And so it literally says that Daniel, not to defile himself by eating food that was offered to another god, says no. And the guy that's been charged with overseeing Daniel and his friends and their training and development says, this is not good. The king has charged me with your health. The king has charged me with your training. If you don't eat this, you're going to look worse off than the rest of the guys, and I'm going to get in trouble. This is the same king who wants to chop people into pieces. He's obviously scared. And Daniel has this moment where he just goes, it's okay. Give us 10 days. Give us 10 days of sorting ourselves out, and everything will be fine. It literally says that, the word says that uh, God caused favor to arise in the heart of this leader and said, okay, I'll give you 10 days. 10 days go by, he comes back. Daniel and his friends look better off than everybody else. Even the guys that have been eating the meat and the wine, Daniel and his friends look better off. And it ends in this moment where where this this teacher of, of these guys says, okay. So he doesn't bring them wine and meat offered to Babylonian gods anymore, he brings them vegetables. It's what we call the Daniel fast. But this is a profound moment when it comes to surrender. Because in this moment and all throughout Daniel's life, this posture of surrender that he had meant that he couldn't be influenced by the ways of one world because he was already surrendered to the ways of another. That's just a fancier way of saying that if we don't stand for something, we'll fall for anything. But this is a word for the church. This is a word for us. That living surrendered to God and his ways positions us, postures us to not be influenced by the ways of another world because we've got something better. So what can our posture be? Let's take a deeper dive first. There's a rough pattern that has developed in some of the situations we've looked at. Daniel faces a potential character crisis. He postures himself. 
in a position of prayer or of faith or surrender. Things have the potential to turn south, or they do. God comes through for him, and off the back of it, he receives favor and promotion. After Daniel uh, is presented, after three years of his training, he stands before the king, and after the king tests him and his friends, we read that the king found them to be 10 times better than every other person in the kingdom. And so he promotes them and he gives them greater platform and influence. And off the back of receiving this promotion, we read that the kings either repent in worship or they still choose to go their own way and ultimately face the consequences. But it creates a paradox for us. And the paradox is this, that everything in popular culture would tell us that we need popularity to have influence. We literally have entire political systems that run on that basis. But the paradox for us, the reality of Daniel's life, was that in his refusal to compromise, instead of becoming insignificant or irrelevant, he gained promotion and favor and influence. And it doesn't make sense. It doesn't. I know that it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. But maybe there's a God in heaven who isn't confined to our ways and that he can cause favor to be stirred up in people's hearts towards us when we don't compromise on our worldview and the way that we're called to live. Daniel's rewarded. Further, God uses Daniel as a prophetic voice to the kings, to the leaders of his day no doubt to the other crew that he was with in captivity, but also to us. About halfway through Daniel, things shift into all of this dense, layered, prophetic literature. Daniel starts having all of these dreams that speak of the future and what's to come, to the point that, that some of the Old Testament prophecy from Daniel is the most referenced and quoted. Because God speaks to him in a way that he didn't speak to other prophets and reveals things to Daniel and used him in ways that he didn't with other prophets, all in the context of captivity. Now, I've heard it said uh, that Daniel thrived in captivity. I don't know that the threat of being chopped into pieces, facing impossible situations, sitting in a lion's den... And just the general sense of loss would have Daniel posting on Instagram, hashtag living my best life. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that we can fully draw out of this that, that he completely thrived. I think God used him because Daniel postured himself in faithfulness to God. And that in the end, there's truth in this for us. That living a life of no compromise of trying to engage culture without being influenced and impacted by the negative aspects of it won't always be a smooth road. We can't just focus on all of the good that Daniel went through. He got sent to a lion's den. He was betrayed. His entire life was turned upside down. He faced being chopped into pieces had he not been able to follow through, had God not been able to come through for him. But ultimately, because he proved himself to be faithful, to God, God showed himself to be faithful to Daniel. 
And there's another famous story, and for the sake of time, I'm not really going to go into it super deep. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. We know the story. They go into the fire. An angelic presence appears, and the, and the king says, did we not send three men in there? Why are there four? And they end up in this position where this furnace has been set hotter than it's ever been before to the point that the guards that took them down there died on their way because it was so hot. And we read that, that these three guys came out of this fire not scorched, not smelling of smoke, with nothing done to them. And they ended up there because they refused to bow to popular culture. How it played out was that the king had made this giant statue of himself and said, bow, worship this statue, worship this idol. We know that idol worship has never really gone well for God's people. So they say no. And they get brought before the king. And there's a few, there's a few moments, a few one-liners, if you will. The first thing they say to the king is, O oh, king, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If you send us into the fire, the God we serve is able to protect us. And then they take it a step further. Even if he doesn't, we will not worship your gods. This is the same thing. These are three of Daniel's closest friends that are refusing to bow to the popular culture around them. And they're sent into the furnace. Hillsong wrote a song about it. There's another in the fire. They come out untouched. And the response from the king is the same. Worship their God. And I think this presents something for us in our cultural moment. It presents a challenge that if as the church, if as Christians, we bow to popular culture in an attempt to remain relevant, I think we actually run the risk of becoming irrelevant. That our attempts to remain relevant, our attempts to, to contextualize, and contextualization is not a bad thing, but when contextualization leads to compromise, we've bowed to popular culture. And we actually run the risk of becoming irrelevant. It's literally the phrase that's getting thrown around at the moment. They look so much like me, why would I want to look like them? And it all starts from a good place. But if we don't have the posture of prayer, if we don't have the posture of faith and the posture of surrender, we actually run the risk of becoming irrelevant in the very culture that we were trying to stay connected to. So the reality is this, from Genesis to Revelation, our message, the message of our God, of Daniel's God, was always about what was different and not what was the same. It's Emmanuel God with us, right? It's Jesus who takes on flesh and he looks just like us. He looks like the ones that he created. He humbles himself, but man, he lived differently. And all you have to do is look back through church history to realize that the demise of the church has often come when we've tried to be popular in culture, in our attempts to engage 
popular culture. But if the relevancy of our message is actually what's different and not what's the same, we've got to recapture that this message, this hope that we have, the God that we serve, this message offered acceptance to the Gentiles, a welcoming in that didn't exist for them before. To the oppressed, it offers freedom. To the sick, it offers healing. To the broken, it offers wholeness. To the visionless, it offers direction. To the disheartened, it offers hope. To the dead, it offers life. To the Jew, it offered grace, this freedom from the law. To the searching, it offers answers. To the sinner, it offers salvation. The message hasn't changed. (laughs) But maybe our willingness to engage culture with it has. And so we think it's powerless. Let me put it like this. My first car that I ever had was a 2007 white Ford Ranger dual cab U. And back in, in the days of the production of this U, the Mazda BT50 is another turbo diesel dual cab U. It is made in the exact same factory as the Ford Ranger. Literally identical. They just put different badges on it at the end. And you've essentially got the same car, except for one thing, the engine. Ford have a different engine to Mazda. Now this creates debate within Ford Ranger and Mazda BT50 owners, but one engine is argued to be more reliable than the other. I had it. Sorry, Carl. But the point is this. On the surface, they look the same. But the heartbeat, the thing that actually ran the car was completely different. That is the call for us as the church. Pastor John preached this a few years ago in our Vision Sunday, that as the church, as Christians, we have to be radically different to culture while being radically assimilated with it. And this is it. This is what Jesus did. He looked just like us. But at the core of it, at the heartbeat of it, the thing that drove him was different. And he never compromised. Because the reality is this, relevancy on its own is not enough to save people, but repentance is. Compromise won't bring about life change, but conviction will. Our programs, our platforms, our political views, our preferences of how things are done, either can't change people at all or won't sustainably do it, But God's presence and God's power can and does. And that is our message. That's the heartbeat of what we do and of who we are. So again, what can our posture be? I think more than anything, it's in our surrender to God, in the laying down of our lives that we will realize all over again that the power of our message has never been in its popularity, but in its author. And he is the same God as he has always been. Our message doesn't have to be popular because it works. Because all of this list that I read before, that doesn't even come close to the fullness of what relationship with our God offers. And so I think if we're going to adopt one posture, 
that Daniel did. It's a posture of surrender. And not surrender to popular culture, but surrender to God. Scotty went here a little bit last week. Romans 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, in light of God's mercy, present yourselves as living sacrifices. And it goes on to say, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So I think there's two postures that we can grab out of this. Living sacrifices and personal transformation and renewal. But I love the language of this Romans passage. It doesn't say a one-time sacrifice. Yes, I put my hand up in a salvation moment and I've given my whole life. It says living sacrifices. Living. Right now, a living sacrifice that my life is not my own that I'm actually living, surrendered as a sacrifice unto God in light of his mercy. And this passage even goes on to say that when we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we will then know the will of God. What an amazing way that the church can engage popular culture by knowing the will of God in any given moment. That will keep us relevant because it's him and not us. And so to finish here, our cultural moment, again, those stats are eye-opening. But there's also a silver lining that for all of the decline, for the Christians that remain, studies are suggesting that they're as passionate and as devout as they've ever been. A Daniel generation, perhaps that won't compromise to popular culture, but will live fully surrendered to God. And so while the world continues to make promises that it can't keep, we get to stand on the good news of our God who never changes. To recapture all over again that that's our message. That that's the good news that we have. Then maybe we can live as Daniel did, immersed in culture around him, in a position to serve kings, to oversee kingdoms, but never be influenced by any of their ways because he was postured before his God and surrender first. And if you continue to read and you see the the dreams that Daniel has, there's this idea of these four kingdoms. They're gonna rise and then fall and the final kingdom, which is speaking of God's kingdom, is gonna rise and never fall. And that's the hope. That's the hope that even in the face of these stats, God is still on the move. He's still with us. He's still working. And we have always been His plan to engage culture. So I think the charge for us as the church, as Christians, as followers of Christ in our cultural moment is to present ourselves as living sacrifices all over again all over again, 
the reality is this. There are some things that you just can't get in a message or at life group or by showing up to a gathering with other Christians or in worship or on a podcast. There are just some things that you can only get from personal surrender. We can preach to we're blue in the face on every platform that's available to us. But until we at an individual level position ourselves as living sacrifices in surrender to God, it's just wise and persuasive words. So what does it look like for us tomorrow, game day, even as soon as we walk out of that amazing entrance back into popular culture, what does it look like for us to live with a posture of prayer, a posture of faith, and live in a continual posture of surrender? I think if my message tinged on one thing, it would be this. The world does not need a church or Christians that mirror popular culture. It needs a church that mirrors heaven. (laughs) It doesn't mean that we don't contextualize. It doesn't mean that we don't do work to communicate to people in a way that's gonna be understood and relevant. But if all we can offer them is a bunch of people that sing to a God that they think is irrelevant, and don't live lives that actually reflect what relationship with Him looks like. We just look like them. And so I wanna end with this in our response. Let's bring ourselves to the altar again. This is not a, this is the altar over here and so come and literally throw yourself on it. There's your heresy grab if you wanna put me in a Netflix doco. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the only way for us to go uninfluenced by popular culture and engage them in a, in a relevant way is to bring ourselves to the altar of surrender again and say, God, my life is not my own. Come and address the things in me that don't look like you, that don't sound like you. So that when I'm squeezed by popular culture or my coworkers wanna call me a bigot or when someone on social media harasses me because of my worldview, when I'm squeezed like that, what comes out is more prayer and more faith and more surrender because he's able. And I think in these moments, it can sound like a big call, right? Yeah, just come and lay down your whole life all over again. Come and present yourself as a living sacrifice and you're going, that's asking a lot, my friend. We've never even met. then can I say this with as much humility as I can muster? I'm not asking. The living, breathing, active Word of God is. 
And I've always found that when something in here that's said by someone up here offends me, the complaints department looks a lot like humble submission in prayer. Because it's His Word. And so I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't even know what it looks like with COVID restrictions in this space. But my charge would be this in this moment. There is a moment for us as the body of Christ gathered tonight to present ourselves all over again as living sacrifices. And when we do, I think we might just find that the message doesn't need changing. We do. We need the transformation so that we can transform the culture that God loves. And so in this space, whatever that looks like for you, I would, I would challenge you at some level to respond physically. Whether it's kneeling, whether it's finding a corner, whether it's actually coming up and, and engaging one of the prayer team, respond in some physical way that says, God, I know it's not cheap. I don't wanna pay you lip service with this prayer but I want to live in a posture of surrender so that I can engage the culture that you love. Thanks for listening to this River Life podcast. Make sure you subscribe to keep up to date with all the latest content. If this podcast has raised any questions for you, Contact us via church at riverlifechurch.org.au or through Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening.